a great data scientist has spent time building muscle memory around investigations, knowing to ask the right questions, when to ask and how to ask these questions. They investigate, they understand how their solutions are tied to the business OKRs, objective key results. A great data scientist knows how to convince or influence a room, whether through verbal communication or written communication. They're able to convince everyone in terms of what path we should take to deliver value for the customers. All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Nilizer, I'm a data scientist at Iwaka, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Greg Kokio. Greg first studied industrial engineering and then did a master in engineering management at the university in Florida. And he then actually did, um, well, had a bunch of experiences. He worked at Avery Denison for around seven years and then moved to Lanza with product management. And he, since 2020, he is now working at Amazon and he is currently a technology manager. So that's not everything. Greg is also a startup investor and he has been a LinkedIn top voice for two years in a row. If you enjoy the episode, subscribe to my YouTube channel and leave a five-star review. All right, let's start with the fun bit now. Hi, Greg. How are you? How is it going? Hi, how's it going? I'm uh, super happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Neil. Well, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Hope you had a good break, a good new year. Hope everything is going well for you. Yeah, you know, breaks are always great to refresh yourself and I couldn't be, I couldn't feel happier and excited about the new year. So, uh, let's, uh, let's bring it this year. I'm, uh, can't wait to deliver and, and, see what other people deliver as well. So yeah, tell me first how you got into the field of AI and machine learning. You're now a technology manager at Amazon, but you've done a lot of things before this. So when and how did you get into the field? Well, I would say uh, from day one into, you know, stepping into college, when I explore my degree with industrial engineering, I would say that it really guided me towards data, a love with data, I would say. So when I think about the classes that I had to take, whether in supply chain, uh, some some computer science classes, a few uh, thermodynamics, I mean, there's a lot of information to process, um, statistics classes that I had to take. And that I was able to transfer into the professional world, especially with the different positions that I had to take. When I think about being a supply chain manager, a quality manager, I mean, I was dealing with a lot of the statistical process controls, the data analytics, just so I can use data to generate value for businesses. So this is something that's been going on over and over. I mean, I was leveraging data right off the conveyor belts at the factories to feed into a camera system so that camera system can detect defects right on the line. And this is what we call now computer vision. You know, this didn't happen a long time ago, but it was way before, you know, AI computer vision had that huge buzz in it that we hear today. So, so when did you exactly made this transition or when did you start really learning about the field? When was your first kind of introduction to AI? I would say my conscious transition, right? Because before when I was in the factories and things like that, when I was using cameras to pick up images and then make automated adjustments in the machines when the cameras would detect a defect, that was it a conscious transition to, oh, I'm actually building an AI system. Uh, it really started mm-hmm. around, 
would say when I was a product manager at Monza, this is where I was very curious about leveraging tools like Tableau, especially Power BI. Power BI is probably one of my tools that I prefer for the ease of use and things like that. Um, I think the DAX language also that's embedded in it, it's pretty easy or straightforward. It comes with practice, of course, but I was leveraging that to generate value for the folks that I was supporting. So there I was partnering with different teams when it comes to uh, data engineering, architecting uh, the infrastructure, uh, and even partnering with different teams like marketing, sales, just so I can understand their pain points, how hard it was for them to get data. My focus when I was there was around pricing operations. And, you know, you can think about uh, to, to figure out what price you have to set for products, you have to understand different point, points, whether it's the cost of materials, the distribution locations, the country you want to sell, the customer you want to sell to, the volume that they order. I mean, think about all of these things, uh, production schedules, the depreciation of machinery, et cetera. So all of these, they reside in different databases, mm -hmm. different tables. And you can clearly see where the data model for this would be a nightmare to put together and automate. Now, if you're considering different countries, right, you have to also account for uh, exchange rates. This was a company that was based, is based in Switzerland and doing business all over the world. So you can think about how we had to take account, take, you know, exchange rates into account. So all of that was where you know, I would devise a plan to uh, use data to build key dashboards that automated the exchange rates, take into account the past exchange rates, current exchange rates, future exchange rates, and updated that automatically. And all of these were my entry point into my data story. And then that was my data story into a, a, a fan company. Now where you know, simply by asking for the right projects and surfacing the right opportunities, I was able to work on very exciting, you know, projects that involved AI and machine learning. So what do you like so much then? Because you're still in the AI field now with Amazon. So what do you like so much about data and AI? Why do you still work in this field? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a question I haven't thought about, like how to answer. Why do I like it? I don't know necessarily. I like the, it brings me some sort of excitement that to, to, so, that I can solve a problem in a way that wasn't done before, right? It's not so much the AI itself. It's more of a, I'm solving a problem in a way that the company or a, a group, a, 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 a function, an organization hasn't done it before. And now I'm bringing a new technique or new tools to explore a problem a different way. It used to be explored in the manual way or the heuristic way, and it used to be a pain point for us all. And now we're bringing this new way of looking at things and to solve problems. And I really like that approach. And then also what excites me is bringing something from zero to one, something that never existed before. And you can just transform it into an independent entity. And that independent entity, you can use it to onboard multiple use cases across an organization. You build it from zero to one, and now you have organizations such as finance, marketing, supply chain, sourcing that find value into it, it, it's, uh, with this product. And now they want to onboard it and create efficiency for themselves. I love that. I love bringing people together. And I also love building teams, figuring out who can bring, who can build that system for us from a technical and no technical side and create sustainability around it and scale it as we onboard more use cases. Those are the things that I really enjoyed. It's not necessarily the AI piece of it, but 
what we can do with AI that excites me. Okay, so it looks like you like problem solving and you like bringing projects alive from, from zero to one, which sounds quite a good fit with product manager or technology manager because you're both involved with AI, but also involved with managing the project, which seems to be the two things that you really enjoy. Exactly. So, and you said it well, when I think about it now, and I think about that all the time, actually, uh, when both AI projects and product managers, their approach to problems are similar. You really have to understand the problem, right? You hear about product management where you have to go out there and talk to your customers, understand their pain points before you even deploy any sort of solution. It's the same thing for an AI project, right? You have to really understand the problem, understand whether AI is the right solution for it or not. And if it is the right solution for it, then walk back and figure out what are the assets that you have at your disposal to tackle the problem. Same thing product managers do, which is why I think that in today's age, I cannot imagine a product manager not knowing the basics of how AI can help them when they're in their field, whether they're trying to do some A-B testing or perform some analytics or perform some sort of predictions, predictive analytics uh, for their products, for the performance of their products. They have to know the basics, even though, even if their products are not an AI-based product, they can use AI or some sort of very basic forecasting model to perform some sort of analytics for their products. So it's really critical that we understand this tool and understand how to generate value for the company, generate value for the customers that we are uh, serving. Yeah, that's that's interesting that you say, you mentioned that product manager and data scientist are kind of similar. They both need to understand the problem and find a solution to it. Often you see teams, I mean, I guess you're working with data scientists as well. So I'm interested to understand what do you think the product manager brings to the table and what does the data scientist brings to the table and how do they work together to have an impactful and, well, good project in the end? Yeah, I I, I find those two to make to be making one of the most valuable partnerships in an organization. I really enjoy working with data scientists. From the product manager standpoint, where I see things going is that where I see them bringing the most value is doing the upfront work with the end user of a product or a solution. So being able to be in the front, on the front line of those who are affected by the solution that is deployed. So let's say this solution is an AI ML based solution. The product manager is on the front line, understanding the pain point, you know, detailing why it is a pain point, understanding the impact of that pain point, how many customers or consumers are affected, and then taking that back and prioritizing which makes more sense to tackle. And sometimes it could be an anticipated pain point too. So in the work that they do, they go into the details of anticipating before things happen, they can sort of explore these problem areas and then take that back and translate that into a machine learning problem. That cuts a lot of work for the data scientist. The data scientist doesn't have to go out there and interview customers. Now, it's very good practice to take the data scientist along with you as a product manager on the front line from time to time so they can hear and understand as well what pain points are, what the pain points are. But in terms of synthesizes this, these, this knowledge, this information, putting it in a document so we can then convince leadership that this is the right direction, this is the direction we want to go, I think the product manager is there to orchestrate all of that. Now, the caveat to this, the machine, uh, the, the data scientists are also there to uh, 
counterbalance in a sense of product managers, we want to achieve everything. We have different needs, right? Like, for example, while I'm reading Chip Hewen's uh, uh, book mm-hmm. about machine learning systems, and she mentioned something that is so true. Product managers, data scientists, research data scientists, you know, uh, applied data scientists, they have different needs. For example, as a product manager, I may want a certain performance for a machine learning model. Let's say 200 milliseconds, right? Past that, my customers may lose uh, patience and may drop the application or whatever. So it's up to the data scientist to figure out what are the trade-offs that he or she needs to make to make sure that we're within that 200. And that 200 is found through data analysis, right? So as a product manager, you're working with different people, a business analyst or a data scientist who can pull data as well. And then without a requirement, you come to the data scientist who's going to figure out what is the best model that can perform at the 200 millisecond, uh, uh, you know, latency mm-hmm. or better. Uh, what is the trade-off in terms of the model size, the model's throughput? What are the trade-offs they can make? I can't make that recommendation, right? And what does the underlying infrastructure look like? And even challenge me as a product manager in terms of, no, Greg, you don't need a machine learning solution for this. Have you explored a heuristic approach? You know, did it work? What was the what was the result and things like that? Um, and, and those are the things that uh, uh, they come in very well. The other piece of that that I like about data scientists too is the A-B testing piece as well, right? So a product manager can come and say, I want to test this market to figure out which product to launch over there. Is it going to be, you know, uh, cars, cars, or is it going to be another product? I'm just choosing random products right now. And the data scientist can say, how how much data do they need to make this happen? Uh, or, or how long do we need to mm-hmm. uh, put sample the data or run the test, et cetera, and how to determine, you know, statistical significance and things like that to de- make, make a decision. And together we, 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 we make that decision. So those are all the things that, Together, I think they make the dream team, in my opinion. Okay, so the, the product manager brings the framework of the problem. It's kind of the architect at, in some sense. Like it brings, it talks to the client, it finds the problem that needs to be solved. And then the data scientist, it adds a bunch of constraints, potentially. And then the data scientist has to take this kind of scope or project or task and find a way to get to the solution, basically. Yeah, I would say that. And product management is mostly planning, um, investigating. Data scientists do also investigate. I get interviewed by data scientists a lot. For example, why do you want to prioritize this feature or this solution versus the other one? I get challenged where I would say, they would ask me, where is the data? You say you want to start with feature A, well, feature A doesn't have as much data available as feature B. So those are the things that I would consider and agree on to say, okay, let's not start with feature A because we still have some work to do to collect more data. Let's start with feature B in the same time. And they would help me kickstart the new work of while we're building the feature B, we can start collecting data for feature A. And that would be, you know, but before I would say feature A has a bigger bang for the buck. The impact is bigger. And let's start with that first. Let's go. And then they would challenge me and say, no, feature B is more ready. It's some low hanging fruit. The data is, data asset is a hundred percent complete. Let's go with that instead. And then while we're building for feature B, we collect information and processes for feature A. That would be, you know, lunch phase number two, for example. So I'm curious to hear from your point of view, because you're probably less technical than a data scientist. I've had lots of data scientists on this show, but 
not so many product managers. So I'm curious to hear from your point of view, what makes a good data scientist and what, yeah, what are the right skills that a data scientist need to have in order to, well, deliver an impactful and successful project? Yeah, I like that, that question. I've heard a lot of people say a data scientist needs to have domain knowledge to be great. I don't agree with that necessarily. Uh, I think a data scientist needs to build, a great data scientist has spent time building muscle memory around investigations, knowing to ask the right questions, when to ask and how to ask these questions. So when uh, their counterparts or their well, sister teams like product managers are coming to them with use cases, they start asking the right questions first. They investigate, they understand how their solutions are tied to the business OKRs, objective key results, right? They just don't go and build things that sit on the shelf. The last thing a data scientist wants to do is building machine learning models that sit on the shelf and not, uh, be, you know, that's not generating value for the business. I'm not saying uh, a data scientist should always develop models that are deployed. Not all machine learning models that are deployed, uh, that are not deployed are necessarily invaluable for a business. We do need both, both that are deployed and not deployed. The ones that are not deployed are key to, you know, improving our research area and, you know, creating better models for future use cases and things like that. So we shouldn't just discard machine learning models that are not deployed. We should understand why they exist and how we can make use of them and how we can take long term with them. So uh, other things, a machine, uh, a good data scientist is great at, you know, the soft skills. We hear that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But it's true. It may sound a little bit um, trivial, or, but it's true that a great data scientist knows how to convince or influence a room, whether through verbal communication or written communication. And oftentimes that room is filled with different people, whether on the technical side, like data scientists, software engineers, or business-oriented folks, uh, product managers, business unit managers, marketing managers, and things like that, finance they're able to convince everyone in terms of what path we should take to deliver value for the customers. And that comes with a lot of muscle memory. You have to practice, 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 and knowing how to you know, ask the right questions and knowing how to investigate. And based on that investigation, understanding the constraints, how you, as you said, and uh, find the middle point for everyone, because we each have a different motivation, which is each have uh, different desires, is how do you respond to all of these to build a system that satisfies all of these constraints? Yeah, that's a very interesting point, actually. So not, not jumping straight to, oh, I need to solve this problem. Let's build a model with machine learning um, and try to, well, try to develop something as quickly as possible. The first point will be investigate, think about the OKRs, think about what the solution should be, whether you need machine learning or not, which kind of model you need, um, how it ties with the OKRs of the business um, before jumping to the implementation, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, oriented, detail-oriented person, you know, that I expect the data scientists to be um, and and re really understand how the pieces to the puzzle work. Uh, and I think also having a great relationship with software engineers is also very, very advantageous because you may find your system to be, uh, to need scaling, right? So understanding how much that costs you know, for the underlying infrastructure is also a good conversation to have or mm -hmm. good relationships to nurture and things like that. So 
it's just beyond, you know, pulling in the mat, cleaning up data, developing features. I mean, beyond that, right? It's, you know, now today it's trivial to have a good data scientist who knows how to do these things, but how do you go beyond that uh, to, to, to become more valuable? I, I like the fact that you mentioned like having to convince people. I find data scientists are sometimes more techy and convincing people is not their strength. How do you do that? How do you convince people and make sure that stakeholders follow your recommendations? Yeah, uh, there is a there's a fine line between, I would say, rejecting a proposal and proposing a new solution. I'll ex- I'll explain a little bit. So I think you know you're you're gonna have people coming to you and propose things. A product manager comes and say, Hey, I want this to be lunch. And, um, there's a fine line between saying, Oh, no, all the time versus saying, No, but here's a solution for it. I think data scientists are best placed to propose a better solution because they have the data. And we know about this expression of data doesn't lie. Uh, I think. We, they can take advantage of that, right? If they understand the data, they can really propose better solutions, right? If they have done some sort of background investigation on their own and understand the trajectory of a business, they understand the lingua of a business, they have clear communication skills, clear writing skills, they can put all of that together to make sense of it. Now, the other thing too is if they have good instinct as well, uh, the data doesn't lie, but also instinct can be a very powerful tool to use in business. You have a lot of business oriented people who use g- their guts to make decisions. They don't have to have all the data. So the caveat to that is you have access to the data. So the data doesn't lie. So you can convince a lot of people there but also use your guts as a data scientist and then combine all of this with clear communication and clear communication comes over time, right? You can practice being in the room and saying things that are clear over time, as well as you can practice writing a document and, you know, expressing your thoughts clearly over time with practice too. So you combine all of these together, that makes you a very powerful convincing uh, data scientist. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely agree. And that's, yeah, we tie back to what you said earlier, that soft skills are very important. It's not just the maths. Of course, you need to know the maths. You need to know how to code, but yeah, you need to go beyond that, as you said. And I, yeah, kind of agree with this. I, I want to focus now a bit, come back to your story because we, we talked a lot about AI, data scientists, but I want to go back to your career. And so you mentioned earlier that you really transitioned into the field when you worked at Lonza. So before Lonza, you worked for like seven years at Avery Denison, and then you moved to Lonza as a product manager. So can you talk a bit about this transition, your seven years at Avery Denison, and then you moved to a different company and you start to get into AI? How, how does this happen? I'm curious to hear more about this. Yeah. Uh, so before Lonza, I mean, I was I was uh, blessed enough to participate in leadership development programs inside of Avery Denison that allowed me to try different positions. These include supply chain management, operations management, value chain management. It really helped me understand the different business KPIs, what drives a business from a cost to operations and transformation of products to delivery and understanding the financial side of, of a business, really owning, I was owning the full P&L of a business. So with Lonza, I would say, to, long story short here, 
is has anything everything to do with luck than anything else because before the position was uh called global value chain manager and i thought it was interesting because at the time at every denison i was owning the full pnl of a business and the global value chain manager at monza would also own the same things and as soon as i uh, try to go there. I was a good match, got on board, and I started, you know, building processes very quickly within the next three, four months. And then there was an opportunity to transform that into a product leader. And I was owning a global portfolio before you know it, simply because I was applying the things that I've learned from uh, Avery Dennison into Lonza. So now, you know, this product leader is now responsible for surfacing all of the price pain points, how to price products, how to optimize contracts for customers, but it was still manufacturing, mm -hmm. right? So this is where it wasn't really a huge transition. I went from one manufacturing business to another manufacturing business, but the responsibilities changed quickly where I was now consumer facing more than the back end operational facing that I was in the past. And then there's also the curiosity that drove me inside while I was at Lonza. You know, I took courses on my own and then I would call my manager, who was at the time still in Switzerland. I would say I was based in uh, uh, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia at the time. And I would call him, I would say, hey, by the way, I paid. You know, such and such money for the dollars for this course here, because I feel like it would help me understand how to manipulate data and create value for the business. It would say, oh, okay, expensive. Right. So I would go out there and look for courses that I thought would be helpful. They didn't really have a job description for me. I really was blessed and lucky enough to create that environment for myself, but I was able to also prove that if I do this, this is the value that I will create. And I gave myself a time frame, a timeline to deliver that value as well. Because, you know, you can't go out there and creating your own work environment and then not deliver after six months or a year, mm -hmm. right? People will start asking questions. So I was really blessed to be able to really guide my own career while I was there. And then, you know, along the way, I was able to also, uh, take other people with me too, like mentor them, uh, because I was running something like a quarterly margin review. And through that, I was also teaching other sales leaders how to perform margin reviews for their regions because the quarterly margin review had to happen globally. So how do we, you know, make them smaller? by region and how do I select champions who would then take these data and make sense of them and create those very valuable meetings that tells the business where to go next. So I was really lucky to tell you the truth. Can you explain in like 30 seconds, one minute, what Lonza is actually for those who aren't really familiar with the company? Yeah, uh, long story short here is that Lonza is a pharmaceutical company. Uh, they're based out of Switzerland, but also they used to own a specialty chemical business. So on the pharmaceutical side, you can see where they would have a lot of clinical locations where they would experiment with drugs and they would partner with the big guys out there, like the Pfizer's of the world, AstraZeneca, etc. Uh, to develop these drugs and uh, they would rent their clinical space to other research companies. Now on the specialty chemical side, they would have different portfolio of chemicals. For example, if you think about the paints and coatings, so the paintings that you have for your house or the wood protection materials, for example, uh, a lot of times you see pools of wood on the piers or you could see them on the streets and you look at this piece of wood and 20 years later, they're still there 
it's not being eaten by bugs. Well, that's because this wood has been treated by a special chemical. And those are the things that they sell out there. When I think about um, specialty chemicals that help clean up or sanitize the space, the work environment and things like that, Loza has been very instrumental to the COVID outbreak, for example. Uh, and those are the different products that they uh, have. And I was responsible for the specialty chemical side, uh, $1.2 billion portfolio of chemicals they were selling all over the world to uh, other customers. And it was a B2B uh, business model. Okay. And so you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that you build something to optimize pricing at Lonza. Do, do you want to talk a bit more about this? What, yeah, what did you do and how did you use data to build this model? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about a lot of things, a lot of times in manufacturing and any, any other places too, we tend to go to the operational side of things to say, let's make things more efficient to improve the margin, right? If it costs us less money to produce, then you make better margin. But that's not necessarily true. It's easier to optimize your pricing to influence your margin than deploy heavily tolling, you know, projects at the cost center to enhance your margin. So knowing that I was, I wanted to find ways to understand the price point, understand the elasticity of my price points and how do I either move it up or down to one, acquire and retain my customers, but also uh, be a leader among my competitors, right? So one thing I did was understanding what are my products made of. Most of them are made of commodities. I started interviewing customers too, especially the ones that are, you know, on the break of leaving, not renewing the contract, so I understand. And one thing that I found was that, oh, I'm leaving you because you have this product that's made of a commodity and, you know, when the commodity prices go down, I know it costs you less to purchase that commodity so you can build the product for me. But why are you keeping your price the same? Why aren't you bringing the price down? Because the cost of the raw material is less. And in this case, it was copper. And when I think about copper and other commodities out there, when the prices go down, we would purchase for cheaper. Mm -hmm. uh, we would have a hedge uh, fund that would proactively purchase and achieve cost savings there. But then again, we were passing that to them. So what I wanted to do is understand the price swings of copper. For example, I'm picking copper yeah. as an example. I pulled data on the stock market for the past 10, 12 years and looked at the variance and swing up and down and leveraged that as a, in a formula for my pricing and say, if we would predict that the copper price is going up or down, we would either go up or down in the pricing. But also my optimization was how do we protect the margin so that we don't go too low on the pricing, right? So you could see how, you know, things get, can get complicated very easily. And then also we have to take into account what are the other costs that would influence that price point, right? Even though we're getting the copper for cheaper, it doesn't mean our transportation cost improved. You could still see an upswing in, for example, gasoline that would cost our trucking deliveries more expensive. So the customer might think, oh, copper is low. 
why are you charging me so much? But my transportation cost is still high. I can't really move that price point, right? So it's creating visibility around these costs for the customer to make them feel comfortable when the call, the price went up and down. Uh, that was the fun part. And, you know, now building this data model was the other fun part, right? Partnering with data engineers, data architects to pull all of these attributes from different tables and creating this beautiful data model that fed into, you know, a web application where customers were able to go in there and estimate the future prices of copper and see how much money they could save depending on the volume they wanted to consume, et cetera, et cetera. That, that made it very fun for them, made it very fun for us because they were comfortable, you know, increasing or renewing their contracts or increasing the life lifespan of their contracts from two to three years or putting contracts back to back with us. We build trust with this tool overall. Yeah, interesting. So instead of having like a fixed price, you're basically varying the price of that you're selling to your customers based on the cost or based on the price of this raw material. So if the price of this raw material decreases, your prices will also decrease most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You make it dynamic, right? A dynamic pricing model. And then, you know, there's also like another pain point for us was the currency currency exchange rates. So we have 49 different exchange rates Mm -hmm. selling in 120 plus countries. So to automate this was a pain, right? Uh, There's no tools that I know of today that automates currency exchange rates. It's manually maintained in most businesses. And then the company, again, um, was in Switzerland. So you have to take into account the local currency and, you know, to convert that into each, you know, other mm-hmm. currencies was a pain too. Uh, and depends on, you know, and understanding, you know, for example, right now the U.S. dollar is stronger than, you know, the EU. Right? Yeah, Euro. And most people may think, oh, now these companies are doing well in Europe. These American companies, right? That's not the case. Actually, what's going on now is because the US dollars is stronger, they're buying less over there because the US dollar is more expensive. Right now, this American product that is sold in Europe is more expensive for them. So now they're purchasing less of it. So when the US dollar is stronger, it's not necessarily a good thing for American companies who are selling in Europe. So we have to take that into account in terms of constraint to understand, okay, when currency exchange rates are fluctuating, how do you take that into account as a constraint in terms of deciding whether you should go up or down in the pricing? Mm -hmm. So that really increased the complexity of the solution. And it made it also more fun because you had so many people at the table to brilliant people at the table to come up with the finest of solutions for the customers. One one thing, so you mentioned the customer could see, basically see whether the price would increase or decrease on their side. So I guess on your side, you had some kind of model which would predict what the price of those commodities would be in the future? Did you use some AI there to predict future prices? The funny thing is, I wouldn't call it AI at all. Just simply forecasting models. Okay. Right? So simple forecasting models and that really, you know, and and also the, the, the confidence level that we just agreed to set Right, are we 96% confident that the sway would be more than, mm-hmm. let's say, 40 cents? I can't remember what the price of copper is, <laughs> but let's say we're confident, right, that over the next two years, the price of copper won't go down by more than 40 cents mm-hmm. or whatever, something like that, right? So it's just simple, simple forecasting models that helped us. And same thing for exchange rates, right? But there are so many things that we don't control. Like, for example, um, 
one thing that influenced our cost of production was uh, an explosion in factories in China, mm-hmm. right? Or strikes happening in China, right? So there are so many things that would cost us so much that you could only consider a few constraints. And the price of the, the, the historical data of copper was one of them. And exploring that with simple forecasting models was enough for us. We didn't need mm-hmm. to implement fancy AI, you know, algorithms to solve these problems. Do you know roughly what the impact was of this change in pricing from a fixed price to a dynamic price? Like how much more money did you make to the business? Do you- yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't remember exactly, but I know for sure we went up 20%, like, uh, of the, of the, uh, um, uh, margin. Our margin increased by 20% in terms of like total, total amount of dollars, which was very telling for us because what usually happened with competitors, they would put their prices down to a point where they would make negative margin and then agree to book one-year contracts with the customers and poach them. And after a year, they would jack up the prices. But for us, we're able to do that dynamic price pricing. So for example, if our margin was, you know, $100 million for the year prior, this dynamic pricing brought an additional $20 million to to the business. So we're, we ended the year with 120 in terms of margin, which was pretty impressive because, you know, it wasn't an easy year. It was a year where China was a really big problem, like a lot of explosion and things like that. And then, you know, right before I left, COVID happened. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they made up for these losses, right? I'm pretty sure that the margin went even up because the company also produces you know, sanitizer, uh, chemicals. So I'm pretty sure when COVID, you know, was there, they picked up with production and they could influence the prices even better and things like that. But those are the things that I remember from that. Yeah, 20% is quite a big increase, 20% increase in margin. Is that a good example then of you don't necessarily need AI to every solution, right? You can build simple models and still have a huge impact on your business. Yeah, you don't necessarily need AI, but you need to keep it in your back pocket for sure. And you need to have the right mental model or working model, however we want to call it. And that mental model is when we want to create value for the business, let's use data to do it. And by doing so, so many times, you build that muscle for when the time comes to actually leverage AI, it will be like a cool breeze because now you've already done the groundwork in the past. You've done so many projects where you've collected data, you've cleaned it up, you've you know analyzed it, you understood it, you applied simple analytics to it to create value. And now when the time comes for you to leverage AI, it won't be as much of an effort than most people are deploying out there for the first time leveraging AI. So basically, yeah, you need to, you start simple. Is it some, some case where you need to start simple and you might not start with AI, but you need to think about AI as well. And you might need AI later on in the process. Absolutely. And starting simple shouldn't be taken lightly, right? Starting simple over time, many times over, really makes you good at what you do, right? So if you've been cleaning data, collecting data, monitoring data, keeping high quality data for the past years, you're more likely to be successful in the next AI projects than anybody else versus somebody who's coming right from the beginning and starts with an AI project and now figures out how to collect that data, how to clean it, who to hire, how to maintain the system, et cetera, et cetera, will suffer more than one who has been in the trenches for the longest 
in the basics for the longest and know and understand the value of data for the longest. So yeah, yeah, I agree. I've read Atomic Habits, and in the one advice in the book is anything you want to start, it can be a habit, it can be a project. You need to start simple because the most difficult thing is actually to get started. And if you think about something too complex, you're going to be scared. You're not going to want to start the project or to start the habit. Uh, for example, let's say you never read books. If you want to start reading a book, start by reading, you know, one page every day. If you set a goal of, I don't know, a hundred pages every day, you're not going to do it because that's too scary. So I guess it's kind of the same thing with a project. Start simple, get something that's working and then iterate. Yeah. And, and what I'm saying is not necessarily black and white, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not saying, oh, you should only start small and the because there will be conditions, right? You may be a company that will go under if over the next year, you don't start with AI to create value, right? So it's not really, and, and in this case, it doesn't work to start small for the next year or two because time is of the essence. Nowadays, right, AI is too available for us, for, for a company to just wait two years before they get engaged in it. There needs to be, you know, processes in place to, you know, really make the best evaluation possible to ensure, you know, successful AI implementations. Uh, you cannot, companies nowadays cannot afford to wait another year before deciding to whether they want to leverage AI or not. It's already upon us. And those who are leveraging it today are clearly showing competitive advantage. So what I say there is, yes, start small, but really time is of is a key constraint here. Uh, so you don't get left behind. Yeah, and I should say simple is not always small. You can also start simple and go big. It's just, I think oh, the, the right thing of starting simple is also you get something out there much quicker and you can still build the bigger, the more complex solution in the background. But with something small, you can at least get feedback and also get something that brings value more quickly, I think. Exactly. What I find in my career is that, you know, things are never black or white, right? It's always mm -hmm. a web of compromising of trade-offs and things like that, right? So you have to really understand the level playing field, you know, understand the, the field you're in to, you know, figure out the shortest path or the best path to, to value for a business. So you have to sacrifice something for the sake of another. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's never a clear path, right? That's why we get hired, right? To figure out the best path to value. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we get hired for now. Maybe next year it might, <laughs> GP, chat GPT might get our place. <laughs> yeah, about that chat GPT, right? So <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, one of those things. Uh, I'm a... Uh, I'm a, I'm a, an exciting observer of, of such tools, especially with the buzz is creating today, um, how it will be, um, deployed and I've even heard the news about, you know, Bing leveraging it, but you know, those things are not, it, 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 you know, a lot of people say, oh, it will replace Google is code red for Google. I really doubt that, but you know, I'll refrain from saying anything else mm -hmm. for now, but uh, that's why I'm saying I'm a, an excited observer and kudos to the team there because you know how I realized that ChatGPT has taken us by storm is when I observe people on Instagram or other social media who are so far away from tech talking about it they're talking about it they used it and they use it for very random stuff like hey write me a poem or this and this the fact that they've heard about it is an amazing thing so it's a it's a huge accomplishment for chat team that's pretty cool yeah it's just version one right like they're they might I be know. working already on chat gpt four or five i don't know so 
Um, in a couple of years, that might be, that might be quite crazy what it can do. At the moment, it's still, you're using it for fun. It's also useful if you want to look for something or look for some information, but you need to kind of double check things. I don't think it's like 100% reliable yet, but I don't know, in two, three years, this tool might be very, very impressive. I mean, it's already super impressive now, but given how quickly progress is going, I think it can become quite, quite crazy and quite scary as well, potentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's um, is it is it Google who came up with the transformer? So, uh, you know, I'm not I think sure. they're the ones. Yeah, right. I'm not entirely attention sure. Attention is all. Attention is all you need. Was written by. Uh, Google scientists, I believe, if I recall, I may be wrong, but you know, uh, they, they, I believe it came inside of Google and I'm like, okay, Google, what, what kind of response did you have there? <laughs> you came up with the transformer. <laughs> what do you have up your sleeves? I know you do have some things, right? So, I mean, we've heard about other models that, you know, uh, are capable of long form chats. Uh, with with people and uh, that are stateful and you know are potentially stateful, but you know I'm curious. It's going to be a very interesting year, and it's going to be a very interesting year for the end consumer as well because now it feels like we're getting closer to having assistants uh, who can make our lives a little bit easier. What I haven't really spent time on yet is understanding the secondary effects of these tools say for example you know how lazy will it make me become right like as the calculator maybe the calculator for example has made me very lazy in terms of you know making simple addition or multiplications how is that going to affect us as a society too right when we start to you know think about being creative and things like that right so uh those are the things that i think you know we should start thinking about in whether there's a negative secondary effect or not, uh, we should surface that as early as possible so we can put the guardrails in place before it's too late. Yeah, yeah, I'm always scared of those things. Obviously, the easy bits are nice, like you can debug code or you can look for something. Um, you've got a question and it answers your question. But yeah, then it can go further than this. I don't know, it can... For example, school might, might become dead. Like, let's say you've got a no, a no, a homework. If, if it can do the homework for, for you, how, how is school going to react? How, how are they going to plagiarism? You know, like it's. Exactly. Yeah. So those are the things that I think we should spend more time thinking about, you know, not saying, oh, we should be banned in schools and things like that, but how can they both work together? Right. Can there be another version for education where, you know, the AI system is not really defaulting all the response, but provides a guidance, right? Let's say, think about, there's always a teacher teaching assistant at school, right? Can that AI become the teaching assistant when the student needs help? I mean, those are the kind of like versions of chat GPT that I'm hoping we can create to make sure that we put tech, you know, human creativity and we leverage AI to enhance or augment human creativity, right? So I'm hope I'm hopeful about that. So let's move just a few minutes on Amazon. Now we haven't talked too much about this, but you're currently working at Amazon. So do you want to give a short overview of your role as a technology manager? What does this mean to be a technology manager, and what are you working on? in a high level view. Yeah, absolutely. I can, yeah, as you see, I can only provide a high, a high level view. Uh, so my role is closer to being a product manager than anything else. Uh, so I manage a portfolio of products. I'm part of compliance, uh, on the retail side. So I make sure that you and I as customers go out there and purchase things that are safe. And, and to do so, I build products that are, you know, being used internally versus, you know, external consumer facing products. And these products are augmenting our capacity 
basically, I developed intelligent systems that learn how to process documents, analyze images, analyze natural language, and you know provide a recommendation. Hey, is this product appropriate or safe for the external consumers to purchase on the website? And uh, that's uh, pretty much it. And you know, understanding you know when I partner with either the business, uh, the requirements that I gather from them, translate that into technical requirements, and then go to the different teams, whether it's a mixture of data engineers, applied scientists, software engineers, to build that infrastructure, that product, that AI-based products to deliver for for the end customer. So, but basically, I'm, I'm inside of compliance, and I make things safe for us all. Uh, by leveraging technology, but you don't. You, so you deploy, you build the tool internally, but then you use them to use not sell them, but you offer them to your customers so that they can also use it and run their businesses with those tools. Cor- correct. In my customers are internal, exactly. Okay. So they run their businesses internally. So I create value for them internally, which in turn makes it. For you and I, who are going on to the Amazon.com website, uh, when we go purchase stuff, we purchase the good stuff, right? We purchase high quality, uh, uh, high value uh, stuff uh, and, and, and things that satisfy our expectations and beyond. Yeah, so you, you, we should record an episode in a few years for, for two reasons. One is so that you tell us a bit more about uh, Amazon because, yeah, it's already almost the end of the episode. We didn't have much time to talk about this. And the second thing is to see whether ChatGPT Chat GPT will take over Google or not. We'll, we'll see that in... Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to have that conversation one day. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm excited about those things. I'll be happy to talk to you more about, you know, Amazon, but only when I can. I can't, I can't say much right now. But um, it's always a, a pleasure to shed some light and, you know, I feel blessed, blessed that not only I'm partaking in fun projects, but also in a room full of smart folks. Every time I either walk into the room or tap into this, you know, online meeting, I'm always the one learning more than others. I'm always ready to take notes and, you know, uh, and go out there and apply what I've learned. Uh, and I'm always eager to generate value or deliver results so it's uh it's a blessing we've talked i've got two questions before we actually finish the episode we've talked a bit about chat gpt i'm wondering where do you see the field of ai going in the next three to five years not just in terms of chat gpt but just yeah the the future of the field where do you see this going yeah so where do I see it go? I think there's going to be more um, blend between the physical and the uh, digital world uh, with the help of AI. What I mean by that is, you know, you'll hear a little bit more in the advancement of autonomous vehicles, for example, but robotics will be the next step too. I was reading something somewhere that I really think is going there is we've heard a lot of like large language models for uh, uh, you know, you have large language models, you have large models for computer vision, you have, uh, you know, language models for chat and things like that. Well, there will be some for robotics, right? Will there be a large model for robotics to train robots that will assist us more out there, right? So this is where I say, when you think about autonomous vehicles, when you think about robotics, to me, it's a blend between the digital and the physical world. I think we're going to go more there. Then you have also, what is the next steps for AI? AI has already proven to us that we, uh, they need more data, right? Or, you know, there's not enough data in the world for it to, 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 you know, process. Like the more you feed it, the smarter it gets. So there will be the emergence of, use cases where, you know, I mean, petabytes of data will be available for 
fast processing. It has nothing to do with quantum computing. So the partnership between AI and machine learning and quantum computing will be a little bit more apparent over the next three, four years, right? Uh, what else can I think about? Um, the metaverse, for example. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see an explosion of digital assistants in the metaverse, right? So digital assistants in terms of avatar even, right? If I'm in the metaverse and I'm a fan of, let's say, Jay-Z, right? I may have a Jay-Z avatar, right? Who knows Jay-Z better than I do, who will be talking to me and I'm I'm going to feel like I'm talking to Jay-Z, right? So a lot of like, you know, the chatbot assistant inside of the metaverse will explode over the next three, four years. Uh, those are the things that I can take high level. So last question, if you just had one advice for someone to progress in their career, what would it be? Just just one advice. Um, it depends on the phase you are in. If you're early phase, the best advice I can give you is to try different things. It's better to discover the things that you are not passionate about as early as possible than discover it late in your career. Then if you're late in your career, is try to find mentors. Mentors who can help you guide guide you to where you want to be. Um, so for example, uh, if you want to achieve different things, you want to deliver results, have mentors to guide you, but also have sponsors. And those are two different things. A mentor is someone you can get ugly with, right? You can talk about your pain points, your weaknesses, and that mentor guides you through how to approach a problem give you a different perspective and help you discover new ways of solving things. And then a sponsor is someone at work who is affected by this project, but who believes that you are the right person to solve it. So surround yourself with the right folks so you can advance your career there. So this is the advice that I can provide to both young you and more senior you uh, in the career field. Well, very wise words and a great way to end the conversation. Thanks a lot, Greg. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here too, Neil. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. And yeah, let's catch up in a couple of years for a second episode then. Sounds good. Looking forward to it.